0: Welcome back to the Mercy House University podcast. This is the eighth and final episode of part two of our class, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, And I'm excited both to have this uh, class finished up and completed and out there for everyone and also to move on to the next one. So keep an eye out for future episodes on another topic. So today, we're going to be hearing from Elaine about hope for the eternal future. So, Elaine.
1: Thank you. Um, So in episode four, I try to encourage listeners to develop practices to set their minds on the eternal hope we have as Christians. Um, And as we've said numerous times in this podcast, Paul tells us, if only for this life we have hope, we are to be pitied more than all men. And I explain that my impression is that the Christian hope is twofold. So on one hand, we have hope for the present time, and that hope is rooted um, in the fact that our Lord has decisively defeated both sin and death, and that he currently reigns from heaven. So that means that we can trust his provision, protection, and power in this era, even though we live in a time between that decisive victory that he won on the cross and the time that victory and reign will be brought to their fullness. So living in that hope means that we work as servants of his kingdom here and now. And if we truly set our hearts on this hope, nothing that shakes the earth can shake our faith in our king. And you can listen back to episode four for more on that aspect of our hope. Um, On the other hand, we have hope for eternity because our victorious Lord will one day uh, return to bring his kingdom into its fullness. So, at that time, he will establish the promised new order. So, Revelation 21 shows us that the old order of things will pass away that's death, mourning, crying, pain, all that, and that Christ will make all things new. So, my, my main focus in this episode is going to be to continue to encourage the church to uh, put this twofold hope at the center of our thinking. This hope in Christ's power. For the church and for the world today, and this hope in Christ's eternal kingdom are the root of the zeal and endurance we see among the apostles in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Testament writers themselves attribute their confidence and devotion to this hope. So we can follow their example and their explicit directives to set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. As First Peter one says, um, so in this episode, we'll take a look at the second point of our hope. That's the eternal kingdom that Christ will establish at his second coming and then after the general re- resurrection.
2: <laughs> so you were saying um, that the apostles weren't only motivated by this thing that had happened in the past, yes. right? The, the resurrection of Jesus, which they're proclaiming, but that they have this distinctive hope of this, this future Uh, this future hope as well. So there's there's both this, there is this looking back element, which we've been talking about, but you're saying that that's not not it. Uh, It's not just that, it's also this future orientation.
1: Yes. Um, So what clues does the Bible give us to understand what our eternal life will be like? Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And first of all, I do want to point out that there's a distinction between what we call heaven and what I'm referring to as the eternal kingdom. Um, We often talk about going to heaven when we die, but we also talk about Um, heaven is our ultimate eternal destination. Um, So I don't think that's exactly accurate. I think these are two distinct things. Um, It seems from the scriptures that there's uh, currently a division between heaven and earth. I talked in episode four about how Jesus is currently alive in heaven, that heaven might be quite close to us, but hidden from our view and things like that. Um, And we also have this idea that our spirits or souls go to heaven when we die Um, and a scripture that supports that idea is Luke 23, where Jesus tells the thief on the cross beside him that he'll be with him in paradise that very day. Um, But on the other hand, we look forward to this eternal kingdom after Christ's return. Um, So there's this idea that heaven and earth will both be made new, and my understanding is that they will be united and no longer separated from each other. Um, When Christ returns, he will not only bring his reign to its fullness, he'll also redeem his people. So we will rise bodily and live physical lives in new resurrected bodies or renewed resurrected bodies. Um, So it's an important distinction, I think, that life after resurrection is basically life after life after death. Like if we die before the general resurrection, we go to heaven. But then after Christ's return, we go to this eternal kingdom, which a lot of people refer to as heaven, which isn't necessarily wrong, but it's confusing.
3: I feel like another, thing that, another passage of scripture that supports what you're saying is the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says that we should pray to the Father and ask that things would be, uh, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that suggests that right now there is this separation between earth and heaven, where we, where we should want, but like you're saying, we should, we should want that Things go according to the Father's will on earth as they're going according to the Father's will in heaven, but there's also an eschatological element to that of hope that in the future uh, there won't be that separation uh, where you know where Satan is the ruler of this world, as it says in another. Uh, this is in Corinthians where Paul says that. So, so, yeah, so there's a, maybe an eschatological element to that where you, there's a hope for the future that is, uh, that in a later time, there won't be a separation between earth and heaven, and the Father's will will be done in the same sort of throughout reality.
1: And by the way, I do suppose it would be appropriate to pause here to explicitly say, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, we, we're talking about deeply mysterious, unknowable details about the future world. The Bible gives us some clues and helpful images to chew on, but it does not give us an exact description of what to expect. So take what follows with a grain of salt. Um, Spend a lot of time in the Bible praying through these questions on your own and let the Holy Spirit give you understanding. Um, I think the important thing for us to keep in mind is that our eternal life in the kingdom of God will be free from sin and death and all other aspects of the curse that fell fell upon us at the fall. And we should look forward to being surprised and delighted um, and hold loosely to any firm pictures we might develop of what eternity will be like. Like, even the best we can imagine will pale in comparison to the reality to be revealed. I'm going to offer some of my, my impressions, uh, but it's your job to search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying holds any water. And again, my main goal in both episodes 4 and 8 um, is to encourage people to develop a regular habit of pondering our resurrection hope. I'm not so much aiming to teach anyone what they should think about these things, as I am trying to exhort folks to make meditating on them a regular practice. In episode four, I talked about Richard Baxter. He was a 17th century Puritan pastor in England, and his life was transformed by a practice of meditating daily on the glories of this hope. Um, I definitely recommend his book if you're looking for a guide for your meditations. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. Uh, so what are some clues the Bible gives us of what this eternal realm will be like? Um, I'm going to break my impressions down into a few categories. So first, there's the question of the fate of the world that we now know. I'm going to talk mainly about the natural world, though I think that there's a lot more to it than that, you know, human systems and other things that are part of the created world that we know, um, but I'm only going to talk about basically nature. Um, So second, there's the question of what our resurrected bodies will be like. And then third, there's the question of what what our lives will be like, like what we'll do and things like that. So let's first tackle the question of the fate of the natural world and the nature of the eternal world. Um, So I think the clearest place to look for insight into this question is Romans 8, beginning at verse 19. Um, Here Paul gives us some clues that suggests that the natural world we now know will share in some way in the redemption of God's people. Um, so here's what it says. I'll start in Romans 8:19. It says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here we see that the creation shares both in the curse on mankind and in the hope of the children of God. So if we go back to Genesis 3, we see that um, after sin first came into the picture, God cursed the man, the woman, and the serpent. and the world, lost its harmonious nature and fell into disorder and chaos. When God curses the man, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. And he goes on to tell him that work will be toilsome because of the thorns and thistles that the ground produces. So I think that this is an indicator of the broken relationship between man and nature. So one aspect of the curse that came upon us after the fall is this disorderly, inharmonious relationship between mankind and the natural world. Mm -hmm. Um, Romans 8 shows us this cursed relationship between man and nature is not solely felt by humans. So the rest of creation also groans as it waits for the curse to be lifted. Um, Verse 19 says that creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And verse 21 tells us that one day creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. To decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God.
3: Austin and I were just talking about this. uh, Was that a couple days ago? How Mm -hmm. before the fall, it's not that there isn't any work, because Adam is told to work and keep the garden, and and then God creates Eve to help him work and keep the garden. Mm -hmm. But it's. That after the fall, the work becomes toil, yeah. and that there's like fruitlessness in the labor, so that there's that like disharmony between or a lack of fit between mm-hmm. the work and the thing that's being worked.
1: Yeah. Okay, so we see this connection when sin and death entered the world through Adam, the curse fell on the natural world as well as on people. And when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, his new order. He will destroy sin and death, both of which he's already defeated on the cross and by the resurrection, as we discussed in episode four. Um, And he'll redeem his people. And at that point, every aspect of the curse will be fully done away with. So that includes the curse on creation, which means that in some way the natural world we now know will be freed from death, decay, disorder, all that. And we will live eternally in harmony with creation in the presence of God. Um, And we get some glimpses of this in other places in scriptures. Since my main goal in this episode is to encourage people to ponder and pray and meditate on these things, I'll just pause here to remind people that the Bible gives us a lot of clues about the eternal world through metaphor and imagery, but we don't want to develop dogmatic interpretations of these metaphors and images. Um, N.T. Wright says that this, uh scripture doesn't offer us a photograph of what eternity will be like. It gives us signposts. So in other words, it doesn't show us an exact picture, but it points us in the right direction. Um, Imagery and metaphor can sometimes communicate much deeper truths to our hearts than logical or technical language can. Mm -hmm. Um, And scripture writers were employing those devices to describe unknowable things about our eternal existence. So, for example, maybe the future world will have streets of glassy gold and walls made of precious stones, um, as John describes in Revelation, but uh, it's kind of more likely maybe that the language is used to communicate that the future world will be more glorious than anything we can imagine. Not necessarily that the New Jerusalem will literally be made of precious stones. Um, I think
2: it's just a really important uh, kind of hermeneutical strategy for interpretation as we're thinking about these passages because we get such varied imagery uh, and a lot of people want to try to connect all the dots. how How does this picture fit with this picture? And I think... Yeah, you really hit, hit the nail on the head. They're pictures. That they, they give us sort of a glimpse of something that is beyond our current comprehension. Um, and so it's a kind of in the place of imagination that we, we get these glimpses that tell us something about this reality while at the same time almost masking it as well because it is something that's beyond our comprehension. So we get this both unmasking and masking of these, these realities. Um, so I think that's just a really helpful... Way to help people approach the text is that you ask these questions.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly my point. Is like as you embark on meditating on the glories of this eternal new world, it can be helpful to use the scriptures as a springboard for your imagination. Mm -hmm. Doing so from a prayerful and worshipful state of heart. Just be careful not to become too dogmatic about the things you come up with. So in Isaiah 11, there's a nice passage that gives us a glimpse of what this renewed and liberated natural world will be like. Um, It's echoed also in Isaiah 65, but I'll just read the um, chapter 11 part, starting at verse 6, where it says, um, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox." The infant will play near the the hole of the cobra. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So these verses would have been written in seven or 800 years before Christ. Um, The contact these ancient people would have had with wild animals would have made this imagery really vibrant to them. They probably routinely had snakes and other scary pests in their houses, and I imagine it was not uncommon for children to be bitten by snakes. Um, Shepherds would have had really uh, real experiences with leopards attacking their flocks and things like that. So in other words, the original readers of these passages um, didn't only know about lions from watching NOVA when they had the flu as kids. <laughs> where I got my introduction to lions. Um, so this brings up a pet peeve of mine about our culture. Um, you know, We often talk about nature as if it's this peaceful refuge from our hectic lives, but nature is not peaceful. Everything out there is fighting for survival. You know, birds are not singing because they're in love. Bunnies are cute and fidgety because they're afraid that everything is trying to kill them all the time.
2: Um, Which it is. And,
1: right. I actually saw a bunny this morning and it, I just wanted to hang out and it was like running away from me. <laughs> That's really sad. Um, so, moose are majestic and beautiful creatures, but they are wicked, dangerous. Um, I actually Googled what to do if you run into a moose in the wild, and they don't even tell you what to do if you're attacked by a moose because it's pretty much assumed that you're not going to survive. Um, So anyway, my point is that nature is dangerous. Um, And the ancients knew this because they weren't as sheltered from it as we are. Mm -hmm. When we read that leopards and goats will graze side by side, we might picture something like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Um, When the ancients heard about lions and cattle grazing together, I I imagine it struck them a lot more deeply than it does us. So I encourage people to use this kind of thinking as a tool in meditating on these things. Like, really immerse your mind in what these pictures would have meant to you if you every day you had to go fetch water from a well like a mile from your house, and there were hungry bears and wildcats prowling around. Back to Isaiah 11. Um, we don't want to take this imagery too literally, but I do think that it's reasonable to gather from this passage that in the new order that Jesus will establish, there will be no more disorder, whether among humans or between humans or in the natural world itself. So in the imagery I just read, we see predators eating grass beside their prey, We see babies playing near venomous snakes. So all of this suggests a world in which the adversarial relationships of predator and prey will be done away with. Um, It also suggests that in some way the natural forms we know will share in the eternal kingdom. Um, This passage read alongside Romans 8 seems to suggest that animals will have a place in the eternal world. You know, I live with a cat and it's hard for me to imagine what a cat would be like without its finely tuned killing instincts. Um, but both Isaiah 11 and 65 seem to suggest that in the renewed, restored, and redeemed eternal kingdom of God, cats will have a place, and they won't be either predator or prey. So again, this kind of thing can be a springboard for meditating on our eternal hope and rest. Um, you know, look around and imagine how things will be when everything is brought under Christ's reign. You know, when I'm out in the woods or driving along the road around here, I often lament this bittersweet vine that's growing everywhere. Have you guys seen this? <laughs> Mm-hmm. um it's this really fast growing invasive vine that climbs up all the trees um, in the summer, it makes everything look really lush and beautiful, but in the winter it's like a terrifying scene from a Disney fairy tale cartoon mm. um, where the vines are literally pulling the trees down um, and To me, this is just a clear picture of creation groaning as it waits to be liberated from its bondage to decay um, in god's eternal kingdom. that relationship won't exist. Um, But based on what I'm reading in Isaiah, it's possible that the bittersweet vine will be there, just in a different nature, Mm -hmm. Um, a redeemed and restored nature that is in harmony with the trees instead of destroying them. Mm -hmm. Um, The new creation will have no predators or parasites or pests, but that doesn't mean that there'll be no cats or ticks or bittersweet vines. Um, And another point this all brings up is that the eternal realm is likely to be a physical world. Um, it will be similar in some ways to the world we now live in, but it will be very different, too. Um, and we have centuries of bad theology that have mingled with cultural depictions of the afterlife, and those have confused us a lot. Um, like, think of how many cartoons you've seen that show people floating on clouds playing harps <laughs> in, in heaven. Um, Uh, So those depictions have really no basis in the Bible as far as I can see. Uh, What's more likely is a redeemed version of what we now know, a place where heaven and earth are united, where humans live in harmony with each other and with their environment, where work is not toil, and then most importantly, where God dwells with his people.
0: So, um, do you have any thoughts on the possibility that the imagery might be, like, not literal imagery of what the... Because I think this is a view that, I mean, I've encountered it before, that you know, maybe it's not actually telling you, like, yeah, there are going to be these animals in the eternal kingdom and they're going to behave like this, but more like it's just giving you um, some, like, metaphorical imagery about the eternal kingdom is going to be a place of peace where, like, suffering is abolished and stuff like that.
3: Well, I, I kind of yeah. took you to be already saying there's probably something metaphorical about this, but maybe there could be at least a couple different. Degrees to which this could be metaphorical. It could be, like, it's not even actually the case that there will be any animals, but uh, this imagery of, like, animals being there and getting along is helpful to communicate something about how there will be peace and harmony. Yeah, That would be a really uh, more, like, very extreme use of metaphorical imagery that has nothing to do with how things will actually be. Or it could be that, yeah, there will be animals there. Uh, But the whole point about them lying down together and nobody, like none of the animals being in any uh, kind of predator-prey relationship, that might be metaphorical. And just to communicate how everything will be better ordered than it is now. Mm -hmm. Or uh, maybe the predator-prey stuff... It's not metaphorical, but they're lying down together. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, there could be different things you think are metaphorical, and it's not, like, all or nothing. Yeah. Uh, what What were you thinking?
1: I mean, I do think the fact that all these things existed before the fall, there was a natural world. It wasn't just people and God, right? So, um, I mean, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I literally know nothing about what it'll be like, but, um... I do, just from what I read, I do get the sense that there will be more than just our souls and a God spirit, right? That the, there's going to be some kind of created or, order. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um,
0: that, and, that much is very you clear. know,
1: Whether our childhood pets are there is t- totally debatable. And, <laughs> I mean, whatever we find is gonna, like I said before, it's going We're gonna be surprised and delighted by whatever it is. So
3: yeah. And you were thinking that because animals existed prior to the fall, that might be some reason to think that they'll exist after yeah. the redeemed, uh, after creation is redeemed as well. Yeah. And there, are, for that matter,
0: there are some philosophers who have argued that, uh, on moral grounds,
2: it's likely that God is gonna resurrect animals, like animals that have died. Mm-hmm. I mean, it also fits the rest of the imagery in Isaiah, like the famous, you know, beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, so that they, and they won't learn how to make war anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and it's something that's a metaphor. Like, I don't know if they're literally, you know, we're going to literally take all of our so you know, our AK 47s or something and like turn them into uh, big tractor <laughs> tractors. <laughs> but, but the idea, but the the idea behind it, right, is is the same. And I think, I think we can know that, right? We can know that it will be a, a time of peace mm-hmm. um, between God's creation and amongst God's creation in a way that doesn't exist now. We don't know exactly what yeah. that will look like, you know, as far as exactly how everyone is going to be interacting or how animals are gonna be interacting. But it's clearly a world of peace, unlike the one we're in now.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'll say one more thing about these considerations of the natural world that have helped me in meditating on the glories of our eternal rest, and then I'll move on. Um, So I'll confess that I get really bummed when I see the damage that humanity has done to the planet. Um, I grew up on a farm. I majored in environmental science. I care deeply about the environment, and I see uh, the results of our destructive activities everywhere. I'm deeply concerned about climate change and all the damage we've done to ecosystems. Um, I think about this stuff like 90 times an hour, and I'm totally, totally bummed about it. But um, thinking about our eternal redemption and the eternal redemption of the natural world, thinking about what Romans, says, Romans 8 says about um, creation being liberated from the bo- its bondage to decay, that gives me hope. When I follow a di- downward spiral of grief over how much damage we've done to the planet, um, I'll just often pause and remind myself and God that this redemption is coming. Like I'll say a little prayer, something like, I look forward to the day of your return when you'll put all things under your feet, when you'll redeem your people and bring creation into glorious freedom along with us, when every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. So for me, grief over the state of the natural world um, can spur me to deeper meditations on the eternal hope held out both for God's people and for Uh, the natural world. Um, And this hope strengthens me in my grief so that even as I am angry and worried and sad over the disorder in the world, I can get up every day and face the disorder as I trust God's provision and power. Um, I think I said in episode four that this hope that we have doesn't preclude us from suffering. It equips us to suffer well with unshakable faith and joy. That's why it's so important to really marinate our minds on God's promises. Um... So I'd encourage people, whatever it is that triggers your grief about this current weary and wounded world, whether it's environmental stuff or injustice or prevalence of mental health issues, war, whatever it is that gets you down about the world, I just encourage you to pause and remember your hope and make that a habit. I really believe this can transform our hearts so that we have courage and faith to face the trials of this life and to serve God in them that's the first question. So the second question I'd like to dive into is the question of what our resurrected bodies will be like. And oddly enough, I've spent much less time thinking about this question than I have about the natural environment, so I won't have that much to say about it. Um, the Bible also doesn't really go into much detail, but there are a couple of passages that give us um, some glimpses into what to expect. Um, my favorite is 1 John three two, where it says, Dear friends, Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And I just love that. I find it so comforting. Um, And it connects Christ's return and his dwelling with us, or being seen for what he is, with our being transformed into his likeness. It doesn't give exact details about what we will look like or anything. It just says that we will be like him. Um, I think part of the reason I don't think much about what my resurrected body will be like um, is that the idea that I will be like Christ is so comforting that it's just enough for me. Um, And let's remember that Christ's body is both resurrected and glorified. So when we see him in his glorified state, we too will live in a similar glorified state. Um, Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 49 he says, Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, he means Adam here, um, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, meaning Jesus. In that second half of 1 Corinthians, Paul discusses our our resurrected bodies with some interesting imagery. Um, He talks about how seeds don't resemble the plant that sprouts from them, how animals have different kinds of bodies from each other, and how heavenly bodies have different kinds of splendor. So he's throwing out this really rich imagery to basically say we can't know what God's plan is for resurrected bodies. Um, But what we can know is that, as he says in verse 42, the body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So that we see that the failings of our earthly nature that are results of the curse will be done away with. And the redemption that comes by Christ's work on the cross and the empty tomb results in this transformation from death, dishonor, and weakness to life, glory, and power. Um, N.T. Wright makes an important point about the distinction Paul makes here between the natural and spiritual body. Um, Paul says the, the body is sown a natural body and will be raised a spiritual body. And Wright points out that the, the distinction there isn't about the material from which our bodies will be made, but about the power that will fuel them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he compares it to asking, is this a wooden ship or a steel ship, as opposed to asking, is this a sailing ship or a steamship?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, our current bodies are fueled by natural, you could say earthly or carnal desires, and our resurrected bodies will be fueled by spiritual desires rooted in worship.
3: Similar to other parts of Paul's letters, where he talks about walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Question. Maybe you'll you'll address this, but I was thinking when you're talking about some of these different passages about the transfiguration of Jesus, I feel like the transfiguration seems, in you know, a lot of ways, like some of the things you're talking about. But I don't know if we should take it as uh, as evidence for what our resurrected bodies will be like. Do you mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: I've never made the connection, um, because you know how when one of the women after the resurrection, after the resurrection, one of the women like hugs his ankles or something, and he says, no, "Don't touch me because I haven't gotten uh-huh. so," or "Yeah, I haven't been glorified yet," I think he says. So, whatever happened at the transfiguration is different from the glorification that happened after the ascension, or at the ascension.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know. Yeah, there might be a connection.
2: I mean, yeah, I think some people suggest that. He's more saying, don't don't cling to me. Like, go go tell everyone. Like, um, it's, it's not... it's Because not, some people will say, hey, we'll use that as evidence, to say, well, he didn't have a physical body. It was just a spiritual thing. That's why he's saying, don't touch me. Or something weird like that. That doesn't seem right, because he tells... Uh, tell, <laughs> put your finger in yeah, here. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, sometimes people will suggest things like that. So I think it's a better translation to say, like, don't cling to me. Mm-hmm. is more what he's in that context.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So our resurrected bodies will be fueled by spiritual desires rooted in worship. Um, if we think back on that passage I read from Isaiah, it closed with his saying that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Think about how thoroughly everything in the sea is covered with water. Um, the knowledge of God will soak down into even the deepest parts of our simplest and most complex desires. I think those are the most important points that we can make about our future resurrected bodies. Um, We'll be like our glorified king, Jesus, in some way. Our weaknesses will be turned upside down as the curse is lifted, and our desires will be so aligned with God's that we can be said to be powered by worship. Um, Of course, there's also the promise that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So we know that our bodies and minds will no longer suffer under the curse of death and decay, I don't want to undervalue that aspect of our future lives. Our our physical brokenness is a real and ever-present burden, um, a kind of suffering and injustice that we all face on some level. And it's a clear mark of the curse. So if you live with chronic illness or mental illness, or if you care for people who struggle with those things, or even if you're just tired from overwork or you get a lot of colds or something, um, just know that God has a plan to free you from those burdens as well. So now I'll move on to the third question, because I think it'll both summarize and bring these first two questions um, together nicely. Uh, The third question was, what will our lives be like? What will we do in this eternal world? Um, So we've mentioned a few times that the curse that fell on us at the fall will be lifted at the resurrection um, and at the second coming of Christ. Um, I'm sure there are a number of ways to think about this, uh, but for our purposes today... It might just be simplest to think of it um, as a threefold curse. The first and most important aspect of the curse is that our relationship with God was broken. The second aspect is that our relationship with one another and with ourselves was broken. And the third is that our relationship with the earth was broken. So when Christ returns and brings his reign to its fullness, um, redeeming his people at the resurrection, this threefold curse will be lifted and we'll see three these three areas of our lives totally transformed. Um, our relationship with the rest of creation will be restored, which means work will no longer be toil, as Patrick brought up before. Um, and even as we work, we will have rest. Um, our relationships with one another will be restored, as well as our relationships to ourselves. Um, and our relationship with God will be restored, as we saw earlier. Um, we will be like him because, he, uh, because we will see him as he is. So let's take these one by one. Um, the first aspect and I've kind of already covered this, but the first aspect of restoration is the relationship between mankind and the natural world. Um, Revelation says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, Um, but as we read in Romans 8, there's a possibility that this new earth will be a renewed version of the current earth, Um, that creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Um, We also saw from the imagery of Isaiah 11 and 65 that the relationships between creatures may be transformed so that, as it says in Isaiah eleven nine, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Na- so there will be harmony among all created things. Babies will be safe with vipers, cows will be safe with lions, and so forth. Um, and if we think of the curse in Genesis 3 as being lifted, we know that our work in God's eternal kingdom will not be toilsome. It's important to note that God ordained that we work before sin and the curse of toil entered the world. So it stands to reason that we will work in eternity, but this, this curse of toil will be gone. Um, that squares with this idea of harmony between man and the natural world. The ground will no longer produce thorns, um, things like that. I, I can't even begin to imagine what work would be like in a world where nothing breaks or decays or fights us. Um, So this is another area where it's just interesting to use your imagination in your meditations on our eternal hope. Um, Just keep the scriptures as your guide, as I've already said. The second aspect of of restoration is our relationship to each other and to ourselves. And this is largely speculative on my part, so I'll just keep it brief. It seems to me that in a world where there's no, where there's perfect harmony and perfect contentment, there's no need for competition. In a world where everyone is free of pain and disease, we will be at peace within ourselves and will be at peace with one another. So there's no more mental illness or self-hatred or addiction or fear or anger or any of that, and also no more unforgiveness or injustice or hatred of others. Um, And we'll also be united in our knowledge and love for God. So as we saw earlier, um, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Um, We'll be like him because we will see him as he is. There's just a lot in there that you can ponder and pray over. It's just a lovely promise of peace among people in addition to all the rest of the things we've talked about. Um, So that's pretty brief, but there you go. Um, the, The third and most important aspect of restoration is our relationship to God. So before the fall, God walked around in the garden with Adam and Eve. And after the fall, he kicked them out of the garden, um, with a curse, and our relationship with him was broken. Um, Christ has already defeated sin and death, and begun the work of reconciliation. And one day, he will return to bring that reconciliation to its fullness. And at that time, God will once again dwell with his people. Revelation 21 and 22 just gush with imagery of what that will be like. Um, we won't even need the sun because God will be our light. Um, and I think a lot of times we can forget. Uh, that this is the most important thing about our eternal lives. We can get caught up in thinking about how great it will be to eat as much as we can without getting fat and things like that. Um, When our deepest joy will be that we will know God and we will be with him. Um, We will drink from the spring of the water of life. Um, We will see him as he is and we will be like him, as we've said before. All of our deepest longings will be fulfilled because even though we don't realize it now, All of our deepest longings are ultimately for him. Um, So when the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea, every pore of our being will be filled with the joy of the Lord. I can't really say much more about this, mostly because there's so much more to say that it would literally take us eternity to discover it all. Um, But one more thing I can say (laughs) is that when Jesus returns to redeem his people and establishes his eternal kingdom... We will have arrived at our eternal rest. Um, we will have we will have our true Sabbath. We will have arrived at the promised land, the true promised land. Um, I mentioned in episode four that I like to observe the Sabbath when I can as a foretaste of my future eternal rest. Um, and I just encourage people to notice what God says about the Sabbath in the scriptures, places like Hebrews and Isaiah. Um, It's clear from the Bible that the Sabbath was meant to be a picture of the eternal and perfect rest to come, um, perfect rest in the presence of God. So observing the Sabbath as a foretaste of eternal rest is a great way uh, to build a practice of meditating on your eternal hope. Uh, Yeah, so I just um, encourage people to search the scriptures and see what they say about a resurrection hope and build a practice of meditating on these things regularly, daily if possible. Um, Richard Baxter made it his goal to spend at least a half hour a day thinking about the glories of his eternal rest. Um, so this is something that takes practice, takes practice to set your minds on heavenly things and eternal things, but it's worth it and it'll transform the way you live in the world, the way you handle adversity and even the way you handle the joys of life. Mm -hmm. So dig in.
3: Well, thank you so much for joining us in this course Can we trust the Gospels? It's been a joy for us to talk through the wonderful issues having to do with the resurrection, the historicity of the Gospels and the books of Acts, and looking at the early church and just seeing what was going on and what we can infer from the scriptures about the attitudes of the first believers and the way that we can feel connected to them through those accounts. Um, The next class that we're going to be doing together is going to be on the topic of prayer. So I'd encourage you, if you have any questions about prayer and things that you've been thinking about or wondering about or worried about, that you would reach out to us. Uh, You can email us at mercyhouseu at gmail.com. Or obviously, if you know us, you can approach us in person and just let us know what you'd like us to cover in that class. We'll spend eight weeks on the topic of prayer this upcoming summer. We'll see you on the podcast.